I feel like I just stepped off of a merry-go-round. But in fact, all I've been doing is paying attention to the news today, and it is like a crazy amusement park ride, one that I increasingly want to get off of and stay off of, but, you know, it's part of the job. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past programs including clips and interviews like the one we're about to have here on the program with a VIP by searching for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. Our number, if you care to join us tonight, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. To start off our time together this evening, we have with us on the line Republican candidate for governor of the state of Minnesota, Jeff Johnson, welcome to Closing Argument, sir. Thanks, Walter. Good to be on. It's been a while since we've chatted. I think the last time I talked to you was before the primary. I think that's right. Yeah, and a lot has happened, obviously, between then and now. (laughs) Give us a quick update on where we're at with the campaign, and then I want to get into the news from today, which was (laughs) stunning. Um. Yeah, the the campaign is going extremely well. We're actually almost exactly halfway through the general election from the primary, which was six weeks ago yesterday, and it was was six weeks from yesterday. So we're halfway there. Um, just had a great fundraising report. We got over a million dollars cash on hand, and that continues to get even better. So we're on TV. We'll be on TV heavy the rest of the way. We'll be heavy radio in greater Minnesota, um, heavy digital as well. And there just continues to be this enthusiasm all over the state for change, for something different. So I feel great. We just got to keep working and I got to make sure our message gets out. Yeah, those fundraising numbers were impressive, and I do want to come back around to talking about those and uh, the the context of the campaign. But before we get there, you had a Facebook post earlier today uh, wherein you disclosed a truly remarkable story related to your campaign. Rather than read it, I got you on the line. Why don't you just tell us what happened? Sure. So this happened to Donna Bergstrom, who's my running mate. Donna lives up in Duluth. And that was a a few days ago. And uh, she has a tracker up there that sometimes shows up at, you know, where she is, but also I think tracks um, for Radinovich. And just just to interrupt you real quick, for those who don't know, a tracker is somebody who is hired by the opposing campaign, by the Democrats, to follow around candidates and basically record and keep track of everything that they do for opposition research purposes. Yeah, in hopes they say something stupid or right. something that can be misconstrued. Um, and so anyway, I've met this tracker, and Donna, we, you get to know your trackers. It's just right. the way of life. Yep. And uh, oftentimes, you know, you actually have a decent relationship with the trackers, even though they're trying to do something somewhat nefarious, and both sides do it. Um, and so anyway, she came home. Uh, late one evening, and the tracker was actually in her house, sitting in the living room with her husband and her 13-year-old son. He had come to the door, 
and uh, said his phone was dead and he needed to call somebody to get a ride, call his dad to get a ride. Um, and um, her husband didn't know he was a tracker, nor did he disclose that. So he right. actually came in the house, and she came home, and he was sitting there. And so, you know, Donna Donna is not easily rattled. She's a former lieutenant colonel in the Marines, so she pulled him outside and talked to him and asked to see his phone, and it truly was dead. Um, and then uh, waited outside until his dad came, because he did come inside the house and called his dad and, and sent him on his way. But you know, about as inappropriate and wrong as you can possibly get. And, you know, as I mentioned in the post, we're, we're at a point now where the left is literally chasing candidates and their families out of restaurants mm. and harassing them. And, yeah. I mean, this is beyond the pale. Um, and so, you know, the kid's 15 years old. Mm. Um, so it, it does beg the question why in the world the DFL is having a 15 year old do tracking for them. That is, is insane and wrong in and of itself. Um, so we've chosen not to release his name because, you know, I've yeah. had teenage boys and they do really right. stupid and inappropriate things sometimes. But we also wanted to make it crystal clear that, you know, this is the tactics of the left. And if something like this happens again, um, it, you know, we're, we're not going to just, say something about it on Facebook, we'll get police involved and everything else. It's just totally inappropriate. Yeah, it is absolutely stunning that the notion that that somebody would, under false pretenses, enter your home in an effort to gain opposition research. It brings sleaze down to a whole new level. Yep. And, and as you say, this is indicative of where we find ourselves right now in terms of where the left is at. It's just no holds barred. You know, I describe it as total war. They, there are no rules. They've decided that they're going to salt the earth and and uh you know step over our our political remains and so in that context you know we hear every cycle kind of on a perennial basis you always hear this is the most important election in the history of the world in the history of your life but i've been telling folks i've been telling our listeners this time around that there's no hyperbole to that like there's a real sense of high stakes in this election both nationally and here in the state of minnesota from your perspective you're out there every day you're talking to folks how would you describe how do you describe the stakes of this election you know i i, I actually bring this up all the time i say you know every election i've ever been involved with politicians say this might be the most important election of our lifetime. Right. Um, and so I try not to use that hyperbole and I've never used it in a race that I've been part of before, mm. but this one is as important as I can remember for a statewide race. Um, you can look at presidential races and, and say they probably have, they certainly have more consequence, but this one for the state of Minnesota, um, we have just had eight years of, I mean, the, 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 State has changed dramatically in eight years, particularly government and the, you know, the, the, the attitude and the culture in our state government, the growth of government, the, the um, uh, reducing of people's liberty in this state, the fact that government is completely unaccountable. And if we have four more years of that, or God forbid, eight more years of that, I, I really truly believe that we will be so far down the road to California or Illinois mm. that it may be tough to come back and it won't be the state that any of us grew up in, uh, nor will it be a state that a lot of us want to hang around anymore. So to me, as somebody who wants to live here the rest of my life and somebody who wants my kids to choose to be here and raise a family, um, it is as important as I can imagine because we, 
I look at where Walls wants to take the state. I mean, he, he media likes to portray him as a moderate from southern Minnesota. Right. Um, but look at the promises he has made. Right. They are, he talks about one Minnesota, he wants one California. He wants one Venezuela, actually, right. but, but that may be a little too much hyperbole itself. But he wants single-payer health care. He yeah. wants to be a sanctuary state, the only one in the upper Midwest. By the mm-hmm. way, the only single-payer health care state in the country. California rejected that. Yeah, right. They said it was too expensive. <laughs> um, you know, he's proud of his F from the NRA. He uh, is talking about a 35% gas tax increase as, quote, a starting point. And he's made eight, $18 billion in spending promises per year um, that will make it impossible for anyone to live here anymore. So, uh, you know, we four or eight years of that and um, we're in big trouble. Yeah, and it's it is truly ridiculous. And I know you've made it uh, a uh, cornerstone of your campaign to point to the promises that Tim Walls is making on the campaign trail and just the the sheer expense and and the the absurdity that we would ever be able to pay for this stuff and, and somehow maintain a a tax environment that would uh welcome any sort of business whatsoever in terms of the value proposition you know, aside from just stopping Tim Walls which is a worthwhile effort in its in its own right What's the value proposition of voting for Jeff Johnson? What, what's your vision for what government can do and should do on behalf of the people who live in Minnesota? It, it's all about, first of all, focusing on people over government. That is absolutely crucial, and that is the fundamental difference between the two of us. But it's about creating more opportunities for people. There are things that government can do. Also, there are things that government shouldn't do that allow people to make choices for themselves to create greater opportunities for them to have better jobs, to find careers rather than, you know, holding two lower wage jobs. We're actually just exploding with activity in this state because we're not chasing away entrepreneurs. And, and, um, you know, we got young people who actually choose to stay here, uh, even in greater Minnesota rather than, than, um, than end up somewhere else because the better opportunities are there and and just giving people more control over their own daily lives rather than having a government that wants to help us all make better decisions about our own lives or our own businesses or our own farms or our own kids. Um, government understands that it is there to serve us as opposed to control us and direct us. And to me, that I mean, that when I talk about changing that culture in our state agencies, that is so personal for people. Tim Walls will not do that, um, but we will. And, uh, you know, whether I'm talking to a sportsman or woman about how their DNR treats them or talking to a daycare provider about how DHS is regulating them out of business or talking to a farmer about the, the MPCA or talking to, you know, any local official about the Met Council or the Department of Labor with small business owners and just right on down that list, almost everybody I talk to is frustrated with the way government is treating them. And that is, we need to roll that back, not because government should never do anything. Government plays an important role in our society, but our state agencies, many of them don't seem to understand that their purpose to exist is to serve us and to help Minnesotans succeed. And, you know, that's, that's the vision. We, we need to get to that point because we used to be at that point in Minnesota 30, 40 years ago. 
uh, we're not there anymore. We're talking with Jeff Johnson, Republican candidate for governor here in the state of Minnesota. Johnsonforgovernor.org is the website. You can check out, learn more about the campaign. Uh, do you have uh, another 10 minutes or so for us? Sure. That'd okay. be great. All right. We'll go to a quick break. We'll come back and we'll get into more of the digging into these new fundraising numbers that have come out and uh, the implications for the remainder of the general election race. Jeff Johnson on the line. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. The show is going to be preempted tomorrow night for your beloved sports. But, of course, there's a, it's a big news day tomorrow. we got the Kavanaugh hearings that may or may not actually occur. Uh, there's some other news that we're expecting tomorrow. So I'm planning... We're planning to do something on Facebook Live. Now, what the exact nature of that is, is kind of up in the air because we've been dealing with some technical things that we're trying to figure out. But expect something. And in order to tune into it, you'll have to go into Facebook, onto our Facebook page, Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Just do a search for that. Make sure you like it. Make sure you set it to be notified uh, on your notifications. And you'll be able to follow whatever we come up with tomorrow night. And uh, hopefully it'll be uh, something. Well, there'll at least be a podcast, so you can expect a podcast around this time of night. Yeah, there will at the very least be a podcast, so there you go. All right, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. We go back to Jeff Johnson, Republican candidate for governor, who is with us on the phone. We've been talking about your campaign, bringing people up to speed. Now, one anecdote that I recall from the immediate aftermath of the primary was you said you got a, a phone call from President Donald Trump and that one of the first things he said was, isn't it nice to win when everybody said you wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, it was actually a great, I've, I've never met him. I'd never talked to him before, um, but he called and, uh, and he, he started out by saying, hey, buddy, nice job on the election. And he said, isn't it fun to win when everybody thinks you're going to lose? So he, 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 he was either paying attention to the race or somebody at least filled him in on the race. And, sure. Um, that, and we just learned today that he's coming to town next week, which will be great. Fantastic. Good to know. That's the first I've heard of it, so looking forward to that. Well, so I hope, I hope it's been announced, but yeah, he's coming to town next well, week. Well, <laughs> by, by no means, take, don't take what I have and haven't heard as indication of what the rest of people have. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, hit or miss around here. But in, t in terms of just that characterization, you know, you, you've been characterized as an underdog from the start, and that, that carried through the primary, and you surprised everyone on, on the, the evening of the primary. And it's continuing into the general election, where you've generally been regarded as, as somebody who is trying to catch up with the inherent advantage that Tim Walz has, merely by virtue of the fact that he's a Democrat in what has historically been a blue state. And yet we see the release of these fundraising numbers today, wherein you guys are right neck and neck in terms of the money that you've raised. Uh, talk about that. Talk, is, is this in line with your expectations and, and how does it affect your momentum going forward? It, it is in line with the expectations. Our goal was in that seven week period, uh, which was this reporting period up until last week, was to raise uh, over a million dollars, and with with the public subsidy, we actually raised over one point three million dollars. About the we actually raised, I think, fifteen percent more than him in actual contributions. It's mm. just the DFL subsidy 
is $110,000 bigger than the Republican subsidy because gotcha. more DSLers check that box off because they like to spend right. um, tax money right. <laughs> more than Republicans do. So it, 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 was, it was good. And I think, you know, when you talk about being the underdog, I don't know if I'm the underdog or not. I think it's probably a pretty close race. I pay absolutely no attention to polls because I was, I think I was 18 points down to plenty a week before the election and one by nine. So I don't think they're of much value. Um, but what I can tell you is, if I had to guess today, we may be just a little bit behind because Walls has spent, uh, I think, $2.1 or $2.2 million already, much of it on television um, during that primary. He was on broadcast TV with uh, positive feel-good ads. I think we spent around $100,000 on TV. We spent a total of about 700000 So he's outspent us more than 3 to 1 already. Um, and we both have spending limits, by the way. So I actually have a lot more room to spend in these last six six weeks than he does, as long as I keep raising the money. So I feel really good. I think the momentum is with us. Um, the the money continues to come in, and I'm working it really hard. As is Donna Bergson, my running mate, and that's gonna that's gonna make all the difference in the world because it is you know it's, we'll win with the message. And he doesn't have a message. His message is you know, just happy talk, but he doesn't say anything of substance at all. Um, he's very good at happy talk, by the way, but it, it, there's just nothing there. And we're talking about substance and change and, and more choice and control over your own health care and lower taxes so that you can keep more of what you earn and spend it on your own family and actually enforcing immigration laws. Um, and, and that message is resonating with people, but frankly, you need money to get it out. And so that's it's very encouraging. Yeah, it's definitely encouraging to see how your campaign has done in terms of fundraising so far. Of course, that what the campaigns raise is only part of the equation. You also have the activity of these outside groups and, of course, the, the political parties themselves that have varying degrees of, of ability or demonstrated ability to raise money. How does that affect the dynamic, particularly in, you know, we, we had the headline in, in recent days of the Republican Governors Association that pulled you know, their reserved block of television time. Are, are you feeling overall as though your campaign's getting support from outside? Yes. I mean, we're going to get outspent by a lot on the outside, and, and that's been the case with Republicans in Minnesota for you know probably 20 years now. The Alliance for Better Minnesota, the lefty group that goes after Republicans, I think has spent almost $2 million against me on TV already with six weeks remaining. So they may spend three to $4 million against me. And I don't think there's been a penny yet spent against walls from the mm. outside. Uh, my hope is that's coming. We hear that, that they're, you know, obviously we can't coordinate, but we hear that there, you know, there, there will be something there hopefully very soon. Uh, and the RGA didn't pull all their money. They, they pulled a, a piece of their money, but I, still think they have $1.2 million reserved for the end. Okay. And um, they have made it clear that they're just going to keep an eye on the race. And, uh, you know, my hope is that they are here to help. But our plan is is based on winning without their help. So <clears throat> I would love it, but it's not crucial. Um, and, you know, we, we went into this knowing that there would probably be a pretty significant outside spending disadvantage um, and you know, we've already seen it by a lot in the race. It's, it's one of the reasons when I say that I might be a little bit behind. Part of it is that he's outspent me three to one. And the other part is that, you know, I'm just getting pummeled on television by a very false ad about pre-existing conditions and, and health care. 
um, an ad that we're going to answer ourselves probably with our, our second commercial. Yeah, let's let's talk very briefly because we're running low on time. But uh, about issues, and specifically, you know, Brad and I uh, on this program have spent a fair amount of time talking about what we perceive to be a need uh, um, amongst Republicans, particularly in this state, because it has traditionally been a blue state to shake things up and to take risks and to to be more willing to throw their chips in the middle, as it were, and and really be bold with policy prescriptions and attacking issues. I, I know that's something that's that's been on your mind and has been uh, one of the, one of the cards you've been willing to play during your campaign. What would you cite, you know, in terms of maybe one or two issues or stances you're you're taking and making a, a pillar of your campaign that that really stand out as those those bold messages that you're trying to put out there for Minnesotans? Well, I, I, I mean, the biggest one is actually that overarching issue that we are going to go in and we are going to clean house in our state agencies. And, um, you know, I, I've never actually heard a candidate uh, say that before because, you know, the, it, it's so hard to do to actually remove people who aren't doing a good job or who aren't doing their job or who don't understand that their role is to serve. So to me, that is by far um, the most important you know, issue of, of shaking things up or example of shaking things up that we can bring about. Um, I've also been talking a lot about just legislative or government reform in general, um, simple things like whether it's term limits or whether it is uh, not signing omnibus bills mm-hmm. that uh, violate the Constitution or it is, you know, bringing pay for performance actually into the legislature and the governor's office and saying if you're the governor and legislative leaders and you can't get your budget passed within the allotted time. You don't get paid during a special session. Um, and, and and some rulemaking reform, ways to really rein in our state agencies, many of which are out of control. That one really resonates with people, and it's something that, um, you know, can, candidates like to talk about kind of on the edges, um, but aren't willing to just go all in and say these are some specific and very difficult things we're going to do. Um, and then with respect to the, the size of government, um, you know, people get scared when they hear, well, you're going to slash programs. And I've never talked about that. But what I do say is that after a 53% increase in state spending, there's actually room to reduce. And my first budget is going to be smaller than the last budget, which I think will be the first, maybe the second time in the last 50 years that that's happened in Minnesota. And when you explain that, as not we're just going to go in and cut 5% out of everything, but we're going to actually figure out what's working and what's not Mm -hmm. and fund those programs that work and stop funding those programs that just make us feel good. That really does resonate, especially with independent voters. Sounds great. Jeff Johnson, candidate for governor, running as a Republican here in the state of Minnesota. You can find out more at johnsonforgovernor.org. You did mention that President Trump is going to be coming. Is it next week? Yeah, I believe it's next Thursday. He's coming down to Rochester for a big rally. I, I'm not sure I have the date right, but I believe it's next Thursday. All right. Yeah. Well, well, certainly people will be able to find out more at johnsonforgovernor.org. Appreciate yeah. you spending so much time with us tonight, and uh, best of luck on the campaign trail. Thanks. Thanks, Walter. Bye-bye. Bye. Closing argument. Let's hear from you. 651-989-5855. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Just got done talking with Jeff Johnson, of course, running 
for governor as a Republican here in the state of Minnesota. Johnsonforgovernor.org. That's where you can find out more about the campaign and his vision for a Tim Walls free future here in the state. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Encouraging you to go on to Facebook and look us up at Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Just do a search for Closing Argument with Walter Hudson in your Facebook search bar and click on our page, like our page, set it to be notified when we update you. Tomorrow night, we're planning on doing some sort of Facebook live slash podcast type event uh, in lieu of the fact we're going to be preempted tomorrow night for, uh, for sports. And so because it's going to be such a heavy news day, we want to make sure we're getting some kind of content to you. And that's the the platform that we're going to utilize. And whatever we do, you'll be able to find it later in your iHeartRadio app by doing a search for closing argument. So make sure you set up for all that as well. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. So, Brad, we talked to Jeff Johnson and I asked him that question. You know, you and I have frequently talked about the need for Republicans to, as you put it, not be boring and uh, to to be bold and to take chances to to push their chips into the middle, so to speak. And when I when I asked him, you know, what are you offering to that effect or what are the issues that you're bringing to the table that you feel are your bold issues? The, the two things he listed, if I recall correctly, were one going after state agencies and trying to. Uh, get rid of people who are not doing their jobs properly to cleanse those agencies. And the other thing was legislative reforms uh, in terms of changing the way the legislature does its business, in, in, in whether it's term limits or not having big omnibus bills that you know are stuffed full of sausage that the governor with one lack of stroke can just undo the entire legislative session, which is what happened in this last session with Mark Dayton. And those are all great, wonderful things. Those are things I absolutely agree with. To your mind, does that qualify as the big, bold move that, that's needed for Republicans in Minnesota at this time? Not quite. I, I like it. I like I like that idea that, you know, I like that you said we're not going to spend as much. We're going right. to reduce the size of government. Yep. All of those things are great. And it's refreshing to hear a candidate say that. Just like when I said with Doug Wardlow, like uh, he made the value proposition that Hey, I'm just going to do my job as it is outlined in the Constitution. I don't. I'm not going to take the office to be some sort of activist right. attorney general. I'm just going to do the office, do do the job as the Constitution describes. And I like that. And I also like that Johnson says, "Hey, I'm actually going to try to reduce the size of government." Right. Um. I mean, him saying that he wants to put forward a budget that actually is smaller than a previous budget. Right. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not what I would expect. Yeah. Um. But I guess, and I see, like, I, as a libertarian, I see the value proposition in voting for Johnson over Walls. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, he, like, we need to start attacking issues that we know that we can beat Democrats on in Democratic and independent voters. And like I've said before, marijuana, which I know a, a caller is about to bring up, um, and we like we need to start talking about as even you've said um the the ways in which Demo- like how dangerous democrats are becoming as uh in in terms of social policy and fiscal policy 
Um, and but I think I think you said something along the lines of last night. A candidate at least has to meet the minimum threshold. Yeah, right. Of some <laughs> things, and, yeah. and Johnson is starting to meet that for me. I'm warming up to the idea. If I were to vote, I I might, but I'm I I st- I, I need to listen more. I guess you could say. Um, I I wouldn't vote for Walls, but we'll still see. I'll be noncommittal at this point. Well, and that's quite remarkable because the, the Omeland threshold is, is not an easy hurdle no. to, to uh, surmount. Well, it's like, I was debating with a friend on Facebook about this last night, uh, as I usually do, but um, he was talking about how vote yesterday was national voter registration day. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he's a lefty. He's a really good guy. I, I respect him. Have the utmost respect for him, and he was saying something along the lines of, "We can't change society unless you show up to the polls and have your voice heard." And I was like, "Ah, I don't think so. Like, don't you think that like we should have government should be small enough where we're not relying on that as the mechanism to quote unquote right. change society?" And right. kind of got on a debate on the, you know, I might vote if I do think that a candidate could change things for the better, Mm -hmm. but if it's just going to be a, well, Republicans aren't that great, but they're better than Democrats, but they're kind of still driving us off the cliff slowly, you know, it's a lesser of two evils scenario, then we're obvious by voting, you're obviously just choosing a bad choice. And now, and now by voting, you're just choosing the speed. So I think that's an important distinction of, you should like if you if you're choosing between the lesser of two evils, you're just better off not voting because then you're just choosing the speed at which we go off the cliff. And I think that I'm, I, I guess I, and like I said last night, like I would be willing to accept as a person who is just kind of cynical about it all, I would be willing to accept almost any Democrat in any office except for Attorney General. And I know that the. Like Be- I, because it's Keith Ellison. Because, yes, because it's Keith Ellison. Right. And the the momentum of the race is going to shift on what party does better. That is to say, if Republicans do well on election night, Doug Wardlow will win the attorney general's race. Sure. But if Democrats, if turnout is good for Democrats, Keith Ellison will win the attorney general yeah. race. Yeah, there's definitely a lot at stake come November. Let's talk to Ted in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding. Yeah, um, I mentioned earlier, you know, the wheat, that's going to be a big issue for a lot of voters that are kind of like in the middle, libertarian. Uh, Jeff says he's libertarian, but you know, I don't know if the Republican Party ever could dare go in that area. And then I also wanted to, to Keith really trying to be clever by launching an investigation of himself. Yeah. I'm sure some really high-paid lawyers go, hey, Keith, why don't you launch, launch an investigation of yourself? Right. I think that would be really good. I want to talk about Donald Trump's uh, speech, United Nations, uh, okay. yesterday at April. Sure. Uh, he brought up um, Venezuela, mm-hmm. and he said Cuba is, uh, you know, the big partner in Venezuela. But, you know, the big partner is China and Russia. I mean, they're doing the same thing in Nicaragua, they're doing it in Maldives. They're doing it all over the world. It's not on the radar, but it's the Cold War, like, 5.0, except this time I don't think the United States is participating like we did back in the 60s, 70s, I think. We're just sitting there watching it happen, and before you know it, a lot of these important countries are all flipping anti-American, and uh, something's got to be done to stop it. I don't know how you do it without spending massive amounts of money. 
I have some thoughts. I appreciate yours, Ted. Appreciate you holding. We'll uh, get into it perhaps when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. We've almost made it through an entire hour of the program without mentioning Brett Kavanaugh. Well, now you ruined it. (laughs) Or at least without getting into an article about Brett Kavanaugh. We did mention the fact that tomorrow is going to be a big day. And uh, we're we're looking forward to that. We're going to respond with uh, something on Facebook Live. If you want to follow that or track that as it's happening, go to Facebook and search for Closing Argument with Walter Hudson and like the page and set it to be notified when we post things. Um, We're going to be preempted tomorrow night. And it's a big news day, so we want to make sure we get something to you. We're going to deliver it via Facebook. And, of course, whatever we end up producing will end up in our podcast feed as well, which you can find in your iHeartRadio app. And we do, of course, have tons of stuff Kavanaugh-related to get to tonight. But before we do, I wanted to start off by touching on this this piece from the Daily Wire that, regarding Michelle Obama. Uh, she spoke to a number of young folks, and her message was quite stunning. It was astonishingly irresponsible, in my uh, not so humble opinion. And it's, I think it's, I think it's remarkable. Or indicative is the word I'm looking for. I think it's indicative of where we find ourselves in this particular moment in politics and the public discourse. In a bizarre approach to a get-out-the-vote appeal, former First Lady Michelle Obama chose to repeatedly stress the lack of knowledge of the young potential Democratic voters in the audience. The result was the impression that having an opinion is more important than having the facts when it comes to pulling the lever for candidates with a D next to their name. At a Democrat rally in Las Vegas on Sunday, Obama told the young audience that they don't need to be well-read or up on the news to vote. In fact, they could know nothing about nothing, like she says she did at the age of 18, and still vote Democrat. What matters is less about having the information on issues than having their own opinion. On issues. After laying out the problem of lack of participation in elections, Obama said she knows one thing that is not causing it. It's not that we don't all care enough. We all care about what happens in our communities, she said, especially when things go wrong. We care. And it's not that folks don't have opinions on the issues. We all have opinions. So why do so many people fail to participate in the democratic process? Obama floats some possibilities. They think the issues aren't relevant to them. They believe the system is rigged so they don't bother. Or they feel overwhelmed by the issues, believing they're too complicated to understand. After lamenting the chaos and nastiness of politics, which she said is frankly depressing, she emphasized her opinion theme again. Here's something I just want to make sure people understand. Voting does not require any kind of special expertise, she said. You don't need to have some sort of fancy degree to be qualified to vote. You don't have to read every news article to be qualified to vote. You don't well, you know what you need to be qualified to vote? You need to be a citizen. 
you need to be part of this country. You need to have opinions about the issues in your community. That's what qualifies you to vote. Don't let somebody intimidate you from being a part of this process, she added. I've been voting since I was 18 years old, and trust me, I didn't know nothing about nothing at 18 years old. But what you do know is what you care about. For all the young people, you know you have a voice. You do have opinions about what goes on. That qualifies you to vote. So to reiterate, the message from former First Lady Michelle Obama to young voters is, In a nutshell, you don't need to know the facts. You don't need to be informed. You don't have to have knowledge. You just have to have an opinion of some sort and to care, to have an emotion. doesn't matter what the quality of that emotion is. Just have an emotion and care and have an opinion and come out and make sure, by the way, that the bubble you fill in on your ballot is next to a Democrat. That's basically her message. Now, The irresponsibility of this, I'm not sure it can be overstated, because what Michelle Obama is advocating for here, it goes beyond voting. Like, she's applying it specifically to voting, but what she's advocating for here goes beyond voting to how to everything we do to negotiate reality in order to pursue value in our lives. She's advocating a method of acting, a method of pursuing value in life that is the reverse of maturity. It's the reverse of adulthood. You know who has opinions? My children. You know who has emotions and feelings and cares about a lot of things? My five-year-old son. All I hear all day long when I'm with him is how he is about all the things he cares about, and he he's not shy at all with his opinions. Same thing with my nine-year-old. They're very open with their opinions, very open with their, their sense of righteousness and what's right and what's wrong and what they deserve and what they ought to have. They're not shy about any of that. You know what they don't have? You know what they're lacking? Knowledge. Knowledge and experience and maturity and the capacity to rationally pursue values. That's what they still require me for. That's the definition of parenting. I've said this before in the program. The whole purpose of parenting and mentoring and teaching, you know, the, the various ways in which adults take stewardship over the lives of children, the whole point of all of that is to bring a kid from the place where all they have is emotionally based opinions that are of no value whatsoever to bring them to the point where they have the capacity to recognize what is true and what is false, what is factual and what is fraudulent, and then to apply that information to a rational analysis of their environment and a rational pursuit of their values. That is called, in a word, that is called maturity. And Michelle Obama is actively advocating against it. She's taking a position against maturity. She's taking a position against adulthood. She's talking to a bunch of young people and basically telling them, don't grow up, stay in Neverland, put your head in the sand, don't worry about what you know, just focus on what you feel and make sure that you go out and vote for Democrats. This is astounding and it ought to be decried wide and far, but, you know, not a peep for most people. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So it's it's tough to pick 
the most ridiculous, most absurd development in the ongoing saga that is the confirmation hearings, the confirmation process for Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee. It, it really is. I mean, every time a new story drops, you think, well, this is this has got to be the new the new low. This is gotta be this has gotta be the new standard of just how absurd things can get. And then uh, something else drops, something else more ridiculous than that. And last night we talked about, I might be getting a little ahead of myself here, but last night we talked about an accusation that dropped over the weekend that was so absurd that it was universally laughed at. And then it, it was, it was so ridiculous that it credibly, we credibly came to the conclusion that it was all a hoax, that it wasn't really moving forward, that it had been disavowed. And then today, overnight, no, it, it's back. And it, there's actually a named accuser who's claiming that Brett Kavanaugh was the ringleader of a gang rape organization of some sort, which I didn't even know that was a thing. Truth is stranger than 4chan. You know? Like, in the in the context of hanging out at college, you know, in between your classes... And you know your your weekend activities, your extracurriculars, doing your tests and whatnot, you planning for your exams. On the weekends, you sneak in a little gang rape. Well, and and nobody knows about it for decades, and then it just pops up when you go to be a Supreme Court nominee. Well, if you paid attention to the allegations of the Gopher football team, was it a year or two ago now? Yeah, kind of the same thing was alleged to have happened. So. It's not implausible, right? But but it, you're right. Okay, so this is you're making the point though. It's not implausible that it could happen yeah. somewhere at some time. What's implausible is that it could happen and go unnoticed for darn near forty years. Well, it's pretty astounding that it was Avenatti. You know, was pretty confident that he had someone and you know believed this allegation, and then I don't know. I don't know the origin of the 4chan post, yeah. if the 4chan post came first or someone was just feeling creative and guessed correctly. Right. Um, and then Avenatti had apparently de- like shut off replies to his Twitter account and had stepped back from it a little bit. Right. But then he came out and denied that it was a 4chan post and now has a sworn statement to the effect that says the same thing. Yeah, and you know, we'll we'll get into the article here at, at some point during the hour, but my impression on reading this story and considering this story is I I would not be surprised at all. And admittedly at this stage it's completely speculation. But this smells like a completely manufactured story to me. Like, th- th- this is what I picture. I picture Michael Avenatti, who, by the way, if you haven't been following, is the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. So he comes to us. His starting block position is lawyer for a porn star, right? Okay? That's his credential that he's walking in the door with. I, w- I-, I could see him sitting across from this gal. You know, we'll get... We'll- get her name when we get to the article here who's alleging to have firsthand experience of Brett Kavanaugh gang rapist and gang rape ringleader I can see him sitting across from her and basically making the case to her listen this is a you you are exposing yourself to the potential of being charged with perjury by 
making putting your name to statements under oath in a in a sworn statement that are not true. However, they have to prove that it's not true. Like in order for you to actually be convicted of perjury, they have to demonstrate that you knowingly lied under oath. And and it's go it's it's impossible. It's near, going to be nearly impossible to demonstrate that. Like, how right. do you prove? And in the meantime, while they're running around trying to do that, we only need this to have utility in the immediate short term. Like, so all we need from you is to take the long term risk, which isn't really that big of a risk at all, because the chances of you actually getting convicted are very low. We need you to take the long term risk in order to give us the short term benefit of delaying this confirmation as long as possible. Are you willing to do that for us? Are you willing to lay down, you know, on the third rail for us if well, necessary? Yeah, she's freeing herself from the consequences because this is not a criminal trial. Right. She's not going into a court in front of a judge and lying to a judge. She's lying to Congress. And right. if if we know anything to be true, Congress is full of liars themselves. And they don't even have the the cojones to ask the questions themselves. They are completely absolving themselves from responsibility by agreeing to let a lawyer do the questioning and not the senators. Because if it's completely anti-democratic, it it is antithetical to the Constitution and what and our voice as voters in the process that is uh, appointing a Supreme Court nominee, and it um. You're talking about it, the the Republicans deciding to have a lawyer ask the questions? Correct. Because you know it was Republicans who agreed to it because they're the ones in control. Well, yeah. And it goes... We've seen this before in high-profile testimonies where the senators just end up looking foolish by their own words that come out of their mouth. Like, for example, the probably the last high-profile testimony was Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. And you could tell by the question... I went back and watched kind of the... 10 minute highlight reel of the questions they were asking. And you could tell that these people had no idea about technology and about Facebook and how Facebook actually worked. And I just got to the end of it of, okay, yeah, Facebook probably has some things to improve upon, Mm -hmm. but I don't want these senators regulating Facebook. They have no idea what they're talking about. And I would imagine that it's going to be when they question Kavanaugh and Kavanaugh's accusers, it's going to be that to the nth degree. It's just be like, these guys are just fools. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the the difference being with, with Facebook, there you do need to have a, a baseline technical knowledge in order to understand the concepts that are being discussed. Whereas with the this Kavanaugh situation and allegations of sexual assault, conceptually we all understand how sexual assault works and we all understand the the issues that are uh, under discussion and so it, it may they may not come across looking quite as ridiculous as they would under uh, different circumstances but speaking of the senate and how they conduct their business well i'll say it this way it's like when the funding for us bank stadium got approved the it was a Republican senator who put the bill forward in the Minnesota Senate. It was Julie Rosen, who's from Fairmont. She's mm-hmm. an outstate senator, and because she was the sponsor on the bill, the Republicans in Minnesota knew that it would be her name that would come along with any criticism because then you know you just have to vote and you just have to vote along party line, and it's just kind of an easy rubber stamp. They by none of the 
local senators putting their name on the bill, they knew that they could kind of take their name recognition away from spending half a billion dollars of state funds on the stadium. It's that same move. By having the lawyer. Correct. See, I think having the lawyer is a good idea. Because why why would you want because the whole one of the primary drivers you got you gotta look through this through the lens of politics because that's what it is. This is not this is not an, a legitimate proceeding. This is political sure. theater. And the purpose of the Democrats is to get those moments of big mean white male Republican senators grilling Kavanaugh's accuser on national television. And so this takes that off the table. You're not gonna have those those sound bites and those moments and those clips that they're desperate to have in order to utilize in their campaigns over the next few weeks. So it undermines part of the value proposition for Democrats. But it's still anti-democratic in its proceedings. All of it is. Well, I, we've talked on this show about the potential of just getting rid of the confirmation hearing process altogether. Is that anti-democratic? I mean, because that's the not necessarily the The Senate does not have to have a confirmation here. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. We got the end, which takes us to this story that I wanted to get to here. And then we'll talk to Matt and Maplewood here uh, before we go to the break. But Politico brings us a story. And this is probably you might have missed this because this isn't a high profile deal. But it, it is indicative of how absurd things have gotten. Senator Jeff Merkley. Democrat from Oregon on Wednesday announced that he's seeking an injunction in federal court designed to stop a final vote on Brett Kavanaugh, asserting an obstruction of his, his constitutional duty to advise and consent on nominees. Now, think about how that's phrased. His singular, his individual constitutional duty to advise and consent on nominees. I was unaware that the Constitution of the United States indicated that Jeff Merkley from Oregon should advise and consent the president of the United States on his nominees to the Supreme Court. I was under the impression that it's the entire U.S. Senate that gets to do that. Merkley's filing in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia comes as Senate Republicans vow to push ahead with a vote on President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee in the coming days, and hours before a landmark hearing slated with Christine Blasey Ford, who has alleged a decades-old sexual assault by Kavanaugh. Merkley's bid for an injunction hinges on the Senate's constitutional duty to provide advice and consent on nominees and charges that he's been prevented from fulfilling that due to the to the withholding of uh, records on Kavanaugh's past service in the George W. Bush administration. So, in other words, he's taking what is obviously, at face value, clearly, objectively, a corporate responsibility—the responsibility of the Senate, which constitutes 100 members from the several states. He's taking that responsibility, that duty to advise and consent the president, and he's assuming it onto himself. He's basically saying, I am the Senate, and I am being obstructed from doing what I regard to be advising and consenting on the Supreme Court nomination. Therefore, a federal court should keep this vote from taking place. In other words, he's saying the Senate shouldn't be allowed to advise and consent because he individually doesn't feel as though he's been able to advise and consent. The the absurdity of this and the audacity of it is on un, un, it's off the charts. But it it's indicative of the fact that the Democrats are willing to do anything, willing to throw any spaghetti at the wall to see what will stick. Let's talk to Matt in Maplewood. 
Welcome to the program. Well, first of all, thanks for taking my call. I want to agree with you. I think the putting forward the uh, female prosecutor was a good idea because of the counter strategy of, you know, like you said, if you have a bunch of male, old male senators pestering or badgering a woman, that's how they're going to play it if mm-hmm. she doesn't testify, which I, I'm actually doubtful she's going to testify. But honestly, I th- I, the thing that really boggles my mind is why are the Republicans not putting women on the, on the Republican side of the aisle, front and center, to counter this crap, and also bring forward victims and things like that of actual, uh, you know, if they're going to play this game, then play this game. Because I think, uh, let's put it this way, the, the, the diehard liberals are, are you know, they're, they're all for this. They don't care. You know, it's win at any cost. The, the Republican base is, uh, you know, and rightfully so in this case, I think they're standing behind Kavanaugh, and it's, it's encouraging them to vote. Mm-hmm. But I think the middle, the fight is over the middle. But honestly, I think they need to think politically in terms of how they, yes. how they, uh, you know, set this up to just the average voter that doesn't have a dog in this fight beyond, right. you know, watching late night TV and things like right. that. They need to get women front and center to say, why are you denying a voice to these women that want to tell their story? Yeah. And then and, and discourage them from, from actually playing this game and getting someone, uh, you know, to testify that her story is going to fall apart. I appreciate your thoughts, Matt. I, you're right on. We do have to go to a break. I appreciate you holding to make your point. Yeah, I mean, in the the Jeff Merkley situation, you know, goes to the point that the Senate's duty in this context is to provide advice and consent to the president regarding his nominee to the Supreme Court. Now, who gets to decide ultimately what advice and consent means? It's not Jeff Merkley. It's not any one senator who gets to hold up the entire process and say, hey, I'm not done yet. I haven't advised and consented. It's the entire body acting corporately. It's the majority in the Senate. That's who gets to determine what advice and consent means. And so utilizing that authority, utilizing that power, Republicans should be shutting this down right now immediately and just closing it and getting it off the table. And the fact that they haven't done that thus far has opened the door. What what Democrats are doing right now, all these allegations that have continued to come out and continued to be, in my mind, manufactured and put forward in an organized fashion, this is the Democrats sticking a wedge into the process, which they the longer Republicans delay, the longer Republicans go along with it, that wedge is only going to be driven deeper and deeper and deeper and prevent the process from continuing to go forward. And there's polling out that indicates that the longer this is going on, the the worse the numbers are getting for Republicans, the worse the numbers are getting for support for Kavanaugh and support for Trump's approval and all this. And that's all calculated. It's all the point. It's the purpose. It's the reason they're doing it. And so to Matt's point, stop pretending as though. This is an actual civil, decent, good faith process. You know, we're having procedures in the Senate and oh, aren't we all honorable? And isn't this a big, happy family coming together to decide how we're going to proceed in our duty to advise and consent and realize that you're in a political war for your life and the the future of the country and get serious about winning it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I can't keep up with all this. Things changing so fast, you can't even tell. 
what's up or what's down, what's left, what's right. Certainly not what's true and false. And I think that, too, is the point. I think chaos is a big part of the modus operandi of the left when it comes to this Brett Kavanaugh situation and the the allegations that we're seeing leveled against him. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. There's, there's so much going on. It's hard to know where to start. Let's begin over at Bloomberg. The growing fervor over Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination has Republicans trapped between their conservative base and the female voters who will be pivotal to deciding control of Congress in November. President Donald Trump and his conservative allies are rallying behind Kavanaugh, calling allegations of sexual misconduct brought by two women a Democratic smear campaign intent on blocking his confirmation to the high court. But they're doing so amid a widening gender gap that has women increasingly breaking toward Democrats six weeks before the midterm elections. The Republicans are in a pickle because the base, Christian right and Federalist Society types, are demanding this seat, but the party is losing support with the critical suburban females who want to hear Dr. Ford out, said Dan Ebhart, a major Republican donor and chief executive officer of the oil drilling services company Canary LLC. And this is what I was talking about last hour, or last segment. As time adds up, as the delay expands in this process, the longer this process goes, the worse it gets for Republicans, and that's the point. That's not an accident. That's the design. And so, it's you got to understand if you're in a if you're in a position to do something about it, which you know only Republican senators are. You've got to understand that there is no there is no nice way out of this. Like there's there's no good way out of it. You, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to die slowly or take the risk of dying quickly. The longer you delay this, the more credence you give the accusations, the more you're willing to listen and hear people out and you know have a, have a process through which things are investigated and what have you, the, the longer you're going to bleed out politically and the numbers are going to continue to turn against you. If, however, you're bold... And you step forward and you say, enough is enough. This is ridiculous. This has become a circus. This is outrageous. We're going to confirm this guy and let the chips fall where they may. Now, from there, I can't tell you what's going to happen, right? Like, there might be a massive backlash against Republicans. They might lose the Senate. They might lose the House. We might we might have a, a terrible situation after November. But that's a might. That's a maybe, right? If you continue along the path that we're currently on, you're guaranteed to see a bad outcome in November because the numbers are turning against you the longer this thing goes on. So you might as well take the risk. If, But let's put it this way. Let's think retroactively, right? Because it's hard to tell what's going to happen tomorrow. The Democrats have been employing a tactic here that's very similar to that of, uh, I forget his first name, but O'Keefe, James O'Keefe, the guy who runs Veritas, you know, you recall he went after Acorn and he went after Planned Parenthood and he's gone after different left wing organizations. And what he does is he drops a video that's just a bombshell that reveals something terrible about, you know, CNN or Planned Parenthood or Acorn back in the day. And the the world responds and it's this shockwave of reaction to the video that he dropped. And then the next day he drops another video, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, after after people start to feel safe, after they start to feel as though, oh, they've adjusted to the new information, he drops his second video. And then on the third day, he drops another one. And on the fourth day, he drops another one. And they just add up and add up and add up. And before long, you can't deny the emergent reality of what it is he's trying to reveal, right? That's the James O'Keefe modus operandi. Well, the Democrats are doing that against Brett Kavanaugh with these accusations. Now, of course, the difference is when James O'Keefe does it, He's bringing you incontrovertible firsthand evidence of what the left is actually doing. What the, what the Democrats are doing is they're just conjuring stories. They're calling the earth to try to find the flimsiest possible narratives they can throw at the wall to see what sticks. But they're doing so in this, this planned, systemic Let's trickle them out. Let's build our case. Let's let's create as much confusion and chaos as possible in order to cloud the issue and delay the process. That's the primary goal. Delay, 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 because they know that delay is good for them. And so if you know that's their goal, don't let them do it. And if we work backwards, if we trace this back to where it started, which was the Diane Feinstein coming out with the what at the time was the anonymous allegation by who we would later learn is Christine Ford. If the Republicans had at that point said, uh, no, we, no, that's, that's not worth holding up this process for. There's nothing there. It's completely unsubstantiated. It's coming out of left field. It's a democratic trick. We're holding the confirmation vote tomorrow. And they did so. And they confirmed them. This would all be over, right? There'd be, there'd be nothing. I mean, you know, you could you could still conjure the stories, but guess what you're going to have to do then? You're going to have to impeach the guy because he's now a Supreme Court justice. So bring that on, right? Good luck. That's the position Republicans would be in. But no, because they're trying to cover themselves electorally, because they're trying to cover themselves politically, they're actually aiding in their own slow political bleed out. And they, somebody... Because, you know, look, I'm not I'm not a genius politically by any stretch of the imagination. Things have gotten by me. The 2016 election got completely by me without my understanding of what was going on. I don't think these are particularly profound observations. In fact, I know other people have been making these observations. I just wish those who are in control, the actual senators, would act on these observations and just end it. Do what the Democrats would do. What would the Democrats do? In this situation, if the roles were reversed. And the answer is they would flip us all the bird and confirm their nominee. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. And when I wake up in the morning to feel the day break on my face. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Highly recommend you go on to Facebook and look us up. Closing argument with Walter Hudson is our page on Facebook. Like that page. Set it to be notified when we post stuff. Tomorrow night, we're going to be preempted for sports, but it's a big news day. Kavanaugh hearings, potentially happening maybe you know maybe happening tomorrow <laughs> we'll see certainly there'll be news of some sort and so we will bring you uh, a facebook live stream 
discussing that and responding to it, and the audio will be available on our podcast feed, which you can access on your iHeartRadio app by doing a search for Closing Argument. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Joe in New Brighton. Thanks for holding. Yeah, hi, Walter. Uh, Thanks also for what you do. I listen to you every day on my way from work. I appreciate that. Is for, I appreciate you for this. <clears throat> now, uh, in regards to the the confirmation of Judge uh, Covenant to the Supreme Court, and I saw uh, a Trumper, a person who voted for Trump based on the Supreme Court and nominating mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> a conservative to the court. I'm kind of torn between uh, two choices. Like, he don't nominate, or the judge doesn't get to the Supreme Court, and then they win the midterm, or they risk losing the midterm and subsequent midterms, uh, subsequent elections, Yeah, and we have our judge, because I voted for Trump basically because of the Supreme Court that sure. will have our, our ramification for a very long time that yeah. can alter my kids' future. Laws could be uh, put into existence that might affect my kids long, maybe not uh, in our lifetime, we might leave. So I'm torn between these two choices. So what do I do and what does the the Republican do uh, in your, in your, I mean, in your point of view, should we say, okay, because we might lose the midterm and the other midterm and let the judge go or no matter why we put the judge there and then we, we just forget about the midterm and just because I think for me the judge is more important than even two midterms to come. Well, look, I I understand the value of attempting something analogous to chess strategy and trying to figure out moves and counter moves and you know looking down the road to see how the effect of what you do today is going to have on tomorrow. And there's certainly a degree to which that's appropriate. However... I don't think, I think that you can get lost in a bit of a rhetorical rabbit hole by assuming that things are going to go a certain way uh, if, if you take a certain course today. So, for instance, in your scenario, you're saying, do we have to choose between having Kavanaugh confirmed and losing the midterm election or letting go of Kavanaugh as the nominee and winning the midterm election? And I don't think that those two potential outcomes are are necessarily the two that we're actually looking at. You could just as easily make the case that we get Kavanaugh and we win the midterms or that we lose Kavanaugh and lose the midterms. And my, the assumption that I think would be the safest one to go with is proceed as though you are going to lose. Proceed as though you are going to lose. This is what the left does. They don't, they don't look down the road for you know the the impact that what they're doing today is going to have on the next election and the election after that they care about maximum leverage of the power that they have today right i mean you see that in terms of how they're reacting to and pursuing their interference in this confirmation process they're not holding anything back they're not keeping their powder dry they're they're all barrels all the time firing at all times right And so we need to take a lesson from that. We need to realize we are in a total war. And so what I would do if I was in a position to have any say on it whatsoever is I would just move forward. 
I would move forward with the vote. I would confirm and let the chips fall where they may. It's not as though things are going to get any easier by allowing this process to continue to be delayed. Let's appreciate the call, Joe. All right, so I want to get into you know these latest accusations because there's they just they keep piling up and their quality keeps getting worse and worse and worse as we go. You know, if, if Christine Ford's allegation wasn't bad enough, each one subsequently that comes out seems to be even worse in terms of its quality and its absurdity. From the Daily Wire, the ex-boyfriend of Julie Swetnick, the woman who accused Brett Kavanaugh of participating in a gang rape ring in the early 1980s, filed a restraining order against her in 2001 for issuing multiple threats against him after their four-year relationship came to a halt. According to Politico, a Miami-Dade County court docket shows a petition for injunction against Swetnick was filed March 1st, 2001 by her former boyfriend, Richard Vinecki. The case was dismissed 13 days later, not long after an affidavit of non-ability to advance fees was filed. Vinecki, a 63-year-old registered Democrat, claims that Swetnick threatened him multiple times after they broke up, persisting even after he married his current wife, with whom he had a child. Right after I broke up with her, she was threatening my family, threatening my wife, and threatening to do harm to my baby at the time, Vinecki told Politico. So this was like some fatal attraction stuff that was going on. I know a lot about her, he said. She's not credible at all. Not at all, he said. Julie Swetnick claims that she attended as many as 10 parties in the early 80s at which women were allegedly drugged with spike drinks and then raped by scores of unnamed prep school boys. Now, my first question as a senator or a journalist, if I'm talking to Miss Swetnick, is 10 parties where this took place? Like, listen, let's I'm not even going to get after you on going to the second one, but let's roll it back to maybe. Party number four. You show up at party number four, and you've been to three where there's been gang rape going on. Do you begin? Do you begin to maybe start to recognize certain telltale red flags? Maybe you know some some characteristics of the of the events that you're attending that maybe offer you some indication that bad things are happening there. How is it that after party number four, you manage to find yourself at six additional parties where gang rape was taking place? Okay, that's one of the ridiculous aspects. Of this accusation. Continuing at the Daily Wire, Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge were allegedly present at these parties. Swetnick does not claim Kavanaugh assaulted her or participated in the gang rapes. She also claims this happened between 1980 and 1981, during which she would have been a college student. Kavanaugh would have been 15 or 16 at the time. So let me get this straight. Not only does Ms. Swetnick attend 10, count them, 10 parties where women are being routinely and systemically drugged and gang raped. She goes to 10 of those. Not only does that happen, but participating in it is a 15 and or 16 year old who apparently, apparently Brett Kavanaugh at the age of 15 was his favorite pastime was to go engage in gang rape with college students. Could look, 
if I was trying to come up with the most absurd possible accusation I could to level against Brett Kavanaugh, I could not do better than this. What 18-year-old college student hangs out with 15-year-old high school boys? None. 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 Here's, the I think, what shoots Swetnick's credibility as an accuser in the foot. This is from the Wall Street Journal, literally updated a minute ago. Roughly a decade ago, Ms. Swetnick was involved in a dispute with her former employer, New York Life Insurance Company, over a sexual harassment complaint she filed, according to people familiar with the matter. Representing her in the complaint was the firm run by Deborah Katz, the lawyer currently representing Dr. Ford. The company ultimately reached a financial settlement settlement with Ms. Swetnick. Yeah. So, and again, that's the, what's underlying all of this is all of the connections with not just Democrats, but very specific, connected, high-level elite Democrats who have been deeply involved in activism and campaigning and who are committed to destroying Donald Trump. So, I mean, the, you want to talk about credibility, you want to talk about a, the, a case that's ironclad, the case against Kavanaugh's accusers, that they are motivated entirely by politics, is beyond dispute. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. So here's a headline for you. Now, I haven't actually read the article. This is just the headline. I saw it on my news feed, posted by one of my lefty friends. It's from The Guardian. The headline is, Frat Brothers Rape 300% More. One in five women is sexually assaulted on campus. Should we ban frats? Should we ban fraternities? So they cite two statistics Fraternity brothers rape 300% more. One in five women is sexually assaulted on campus. And so their question leading out from those two statistics is, should we ban fraternities? Now, this hurts my brain to consider, before I even read the article, just the concept, just the premise hurts my brain. Because this is the exact same type of reasoning, and we've seen this type of reasoning before. It's the exact type of reasoning that informs the crusade against guns, right? It's, let's cite statistics, and it's a common political ploy. Let's cite statistics in order to build a case against a thing, and then use the power of the state to go after that thing. And that's somehow going to solve the underlying problem. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because, I, I mean, you know, not to just play ad lib with our gun control arguments, but frats don't rape people, right? You're not getting after the root problem. And this is, you know, going back to this, one of these accusers, one of the recent ones that have come out against Brett Kavanaugh, she claims to have attended 10 parties in the 80s, 10, where there was systemic drugging of women and gang rape going on. Now, I mean, was she was she kidnapped and dragged to party two through ten? Like, how did she get to them? Who who was taking her to these parties? Why did she stay there? Why didn't she file police reports when she was witness to party number one? Right? Like the what we the what we find ourselves experiencing here or being asked to swallow is 
a premise which takes all moral agency away from women. And as a woman, I don't understand how you can consider that or be presented with that and not be offended down to your core. The idea that the things that happen in your life, the things that happen around you in your presence, that you are you have nothing to do with them whatsoever. You have no control. You're the you're a victim of of circumstance wherever you go. You have no agency. You have no choice. And nothing that happens is your fault whatsoever. Your life is determined entirely. It's it's amazing. Parallel to each other, we have two narratives. One is there's this patriarchy, right? This patriarchy that's oppressing women by trying to control them and use them and manipulate them and belittle them, right? That's that's one narrative. And parallel to it is the notion that women are completely out of control of their own circumstances to the point where they just randomly find themselves in the middle of rape gang parties 10 times in a row in the 1980s with no ability to do anything about it. This is what we're expected to accept. The, the level of absurdity here transcends comprehension. It truly does. There's a piece we're not going to have time to get into it. I really wanted to tonight. I wish I would have gotten to it sooner because it, it really kind of cuts to the bottom line on all of this. It's a columnist. It's a commentary over the Washington Post by a gal by the name of Monica Hesse. And she says her headline is, it's time to reconsider a lot of our own stories. Are we ready for what they'll tell us? And basically, to sum it up real quick, her thesis is that people have have accepted on both sides of the transaction, whether you know whether it's men being sex, too sexually forward with women or women who have been on the on the other side of sexually inappropriate conduct. There's there hasn't been enough of a willingness to consider yourself a victim. Or consider yourself an assailant in the past. And so people are looking at their own stories of things that have happened to them. Perhaps something that's happened to you. Perhaps something that you've been privy to. And they're not looking at it the way they should. They're not looking at themselves as victims or as themselves as accusers. And what this is, is this is advocacy for weakness. Weakness in the culture and in our persons. We'll elaborate on it tomorrow, no doubt. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.